You're listening to the Drone Pro Podcast, a podcast that inspires drone pilots to make cinematic content and pursue their passions and successfully run their drone businesses. My name is Chris Newman, and I'm a professional drone pilot, and I'm sitting down with other professional drone pilots to talk about their successful drone business processes, as well as onset experiences and lessons that they've learned and how to make an impact in the drone industry. Hey, welcome, Trent. Thank you so much for being here on my podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Um, Trent, so I thought about doing a podcast for like literally years, uh-huh. and um, you were the one that was always going to be the first one. So I'm so glad that you said said yes. It really just would have kind of killed me, I think. So uh-huh. the reason for that is, um, I don't know, some people out there might have heard my story before, but... Um, when I first started, I was doing video production. I just wasn't very happy with what I was doing. I was doing kind of some boring corporate work. And I was thinking about quitting video altogether. And then one day, I saw these guys' demos, demo reel on Vimeo. And it just absolutely blew my mind. And it was the Copter Kids. Yeah, and so, you're talking way back, throwback, 2010. Way back. So, yeah, 2010. So that's eight years ago. Holy cow. That makes crazy. me feel old. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm coming from. So basically, I saw your guys' stuff, and it just made me say, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to do that for a living. Yeah. And so I just want to say thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, anytime. I'm glad I could uh, help inspire you. And I'm, I've been stoked to see your success in it, so that's been fun. Yeah, man, it's been uh, it's been awesome to follow you guys as well, and to kind of see how you guys have evolved over the years as well. Yeah, um, it's been super super cool. So, tell me a little bit about how you got started. What is what is your story? Well, I guess to to really go through the whole story, I have to go back to what got me into film, which was uh, creating ski movies. When I was in high school, I grew up in a small ski town. A lot of my buddies were the guys that were going to be the next pro skiers. So I was the guy that naturally picked up a camera and wanted to start making ski films, which I did all the way into college. And my dream when doing that was to shoot from a a helicopter. That was like, that was the top bar. If you're a ski filmmaker and you're hanging out the side of a helicopter, that was like the coolest thing. And that was that angle I never could get. And so um, I was always into RC planes as a kid. And I think I kind of was like, well, maybe I could build a remote control helicopter and put a camera on it. So uh, originally I, I, I got into remote control helicopters to put a camera on it, but then um, just me being someone that is like so fascinated and has too much fun with his toys, I kind of just got sidetracked and played with RC helicopters for like a year before I ever, or maybe two years before I even put a camera on one. And okay, at that so point, you actually started flying RC helis before you started, you kind of spent some time doing that first before you put a camera on it. Correct. Yeah, I got to where I could do all the 3D stuff and made sure I, I was super comfortable with the the helicopter and all orientations and all that, which I think helped. But in the big scheme of things, I found that the just because you were good at the the stunts with an RC helicopter didn't make you a good um, film pilot, I guess. But uh, I ended up getting hired um, as a full time editor uh, from a production company here in Reno that mainly did toy commercials, but some action sports stuff, some car commercials, and all that. And while I was there, that's when I finally put together my first helicopter with a camera on the front. And it was just kind of going to be a side thing for fun. We went out and shot a video of a, a pro mountain biker friend of ours. I think that video got like some crazy 70,000 views in the first two weeks. And then the phone started ringing and people all of a sudden I, I had a job. I was like, we didn't have a name. We didn't have anything. So that first uh, spring and summer of 2010, we went out and worked just flying by the seat of our pants. Didn't know what to charge. Didn't know what people... Uh, expected what was where to draw the line of what I could could and couldn't do and and all this and um, learned a lot in that first uh, summer but also that's what developed uh, you know the the brand of of copter kids and and really that name chose us when we didn't have a name they were like hey get those copter kids out there obviously at that time I was 21 (laughs) the youngest guy on set so they just called us kids so um, that's where the name came from and it kind of stuck from there that's awesome. So what was your original crew? Who was in your original crew? It was just two of us. It was myself and a good friend of mine, Errol Kerr. He was a, a lec- or sorry, it was an ex-Olympic skier um, that always had a good eye when it came to camera stuff. And uh, he was also an RC guy. We grew up flying RC planes together. So he was the one that I called and I said, hey, come 
aim the camera on this. And <laughs> he was good at it. That first video we shot. And then when the phone started ringing, he was my first call of like, Hey, we can get paid to go do this. So, so he operated the camera and you operated the, uh, the RC heli. Yeah. At the time. And so you guys were, were a crew. How big was your, did it get any bigger than that? Or did you guys stick around to a two person crew mainly? You know, uh, I think we, we, we switched into a three person crew. I think, uh, sometime in 2011, maybe 2012. And it came from, um, us going, you know, shoot to shoot. And we were driving overnight between shoots that were in Tahoe and LA. And we were going, you know, running on zero sleep, flying a thing that could cut someone in half. It was just there. There was a danger side that we said we really need a, a third set of hands and someone to help us with the the back end of battery charging and helping us lug gear. So then Matt, who's still my my tech and visual observer, he got brought in, I think in 2012, and he's he's still with me doing this stuff. So um, now that's what we run. We run a three man crew. Okay, awesome, man. I remember just to step back a little bit when I first saw your demo reel. I wasn't very comfortable like reaching out to you being like, Hey guys, what do you guys use? What do you fly? You know, cause I didn't know you. I didn't yeah. want to be that. I don't want to be that guy. who's like, Hey, tell me everything I need to know to get started. And so, um, I think I like Googled your name and just totally like cyber stalked you <laughs> like straight up. Like I, <laughs> I think that's pretty standard. I think a lot of people did that. And I think I did that as well. Cause when I first started, I, I want to say there was only like a handful, maybe three or four in the country that were doing it in the film industry. Um, and maybe of those one or two were doing it well. And I reached out to all of them just asking silly questions. Like it didn't even matter what, what connectors are you using on your battery that you trust the most that would not give me any competitive advantage, but most of them didn't write me back. There was only one guy, Eric Austin. He wrote me back, helped me with everything I could, could have ever asked. And then he ended up sending me my first jobs. So the same guy that helped me get get my my setup going was also one that was feeding me work and to some extent I owe a bit of my career to him so I always thought you know this guy he paid it forward and helped me out so whenever anyone's written or asked questions I've always tried to do my best to share because you never know at some point that person that you're helping out could be sending you work down the road there you know I'd rather be the guy that everyone learns a little from than being someone that was standoffish and, and not helpful I think you know there's plenty of room in this industry uh, for everyone. So. Yeah, no, I've noticed that same thing. And I found it's, I feel it's also crucial to be good buddies with your competitors. Yes. Yeah. Like, it's better to, I mean, there, there's always jobs that people can't take. So being able to hand it off to someone you trust and know and hope that they can do it back is it's, it builds good relationships. So I would definitely exactly. agree with that. And so it ends up bringing more work in the future versus less work. Correct. And also just being kind of, like you said, just kind of open and helpful it helps the industry as a whole. Yes. And I think we need that more than ever in oh, this yeah. day and age is what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. And especially with, you know, how insane things have gotten. Like I said, I, I, I want to say when I started, there was maybe five or six of us, including me in the industry doing it, at least on a professional level. And at the time, um, the success rate of the, you know, the footage that we were shooting and how much was usable was, was really small compared to now just with technology. But hell, like I would say there's six people on my block here in Reno and some non-film related industry town that are working in the same uh, industry, trying to do the same thing as me. So it's just such a saturated market that you're totally right. Maintaining those relationships with other uh, companies that you can trust and, and can work with on handing back and forth work, I think is pretty important. So let's kind of let's kind of go and let's dive into that a little bit. What? How do you get work? What are some suggestions you might give the people? Um, is there anything else besides the networking, or is that kind of like your like main kind of kind of thing? And you know, I I, I have to take it back a second and, and state that I I would attribute a big portion of my success to the time that I got into this. Um, starting out now, it's a whole different beast. I was lucky that I I had connections in the film industry. I was already working in the film industry, and my work on its own, bred more work. People talked about it. So it was kind of, it was a word of mouth thing. Um, and it's, you know, we've maintained those relationships through today. However, getting into it now, man, I, I, I guess it's, you got to get yourself out there somehow. You're advertising to people that don't like looking at advertisements. They're the people that see advertisements. So when you want a director or DP to watch your stuff, it's hard to get out there. So really it's, you know, go out, uh, you know, find any chance you can to get your foot in the door do good work and that will lead to more work. You know, really it's it that's the biggest thing, you know, don't 
try not to screw up. If you do, make it right. Um, it's it's mostly in, in my experience the service that I'm providing is the important part, um, the most important part. So no, I think that that is is so true. Um, yeah, I found that it's it's really um, just important to have a good demo reel first of all. Um, I don't know if that's one of your philosophies. That's one of the things that I teach because the demo reel is your calling. It's, it's your calling card. If, if those listening, if you don't know what a demo reel is, it's basically a montage of your sickest, best footage put to amazing cinematic music edited professionally. And so when that director or DP goes to your website, he sees it and he says, I want to hire you guys. I've already got a drone guy, but I just saw your demo reel and I want to hire you guys. And so that's kind of how I think a demo reel needs to be. How- I totally agree with you on the demo reel thing. Really, it, it is our, our visual um, portfolio or, or business card or resume, you could call it. That That's that's what we're judged off of and that's what gets us more work. It's definitely something that I, I need to catch up on. I think there's a point when you become so busy that it's easy to become complacent and kind of forget about gathering footage for that and that's what's happened to us. Um, I think my demo reel that I actively have playing is still something that was shot on a single rotor helicopter with a servo gimbal, horrible stabilization. It was all shot in HD before 4K. It's it's bad. And I'm working on collecting footage. But as you know, once you end up on, on the higher end commercials and, and movies and stuff, there's, it's I mean, you're you're stealing it if you pull the footage from that and save it. So it's one of those things you got to try to uh, find the right person after the fact and get that footage and. It, it's a nightmare. So that's what I've been stuck in this this like last year trying to get the footage that I know I have, that I know I need. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> some point. I, I, the demo reel is very important, and I, I, I'm guilty of not keeping up on that. Uh, I am too. It's been My last one was uh, 2015. <laughs> uh, I think mine was like 2013 or 2014. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'm definitely guilty of that too. Um, but, yeah, you're right, man. Once you start doing the bigger projects, like – Man, you ask for like the footage even nicely, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah. no, like you don't have the foot, you don't have the rights. I don't even have the rights. Like, you know, once it's broadcast on TV, you could record it, you know, screen capture it on the internet yeah. or something. He's like, you can use that part. It's like, oh, great. You know, so. Yeah. And then just trying to get up that food chain to the person that actually has control to give you the yes. And then getting through to the other guy that can actually go and search through all their footage and send you it. And how do you, oh, it's man. just. It bogs down their company. I understand you're it's you're asking a lot by saying, "Hey, yeah. can you guys take an hour of your time to go find this footage and drop it on a drive and send it to me?" So that's definitely a, a hurdle of its own. It's really tough. Now I've had, um, I mean, the industry is there's a lot more people in the industry now, but I've had some of my members have had some really good success, and it, a lot of it comes down to what we've talked about the demo rail, and then their networking abilities. Yep. And uh, I'm going to be interviewing one of them pretty soon uh, coming up. So if you're listening to this podcast, stay stay tuned for that. He he just started like like a year year and a half ago, and he's like full time pretty much just booked up. So um, oh, it'll be awesome. fun. It'll be fun to hear how he's doing it in this industry. You know, because I think there. I mean, I kind of feel like you know, there's definitely um, like a lot more people flying drones, but there's also a lot more people that know about drones and know about the capabilities and want to hire drone operators as well. You know, it's kind of like oh, yeah. living in Salt Lake. There's not as many, you know, jobs, but there's less pilots, you know, and then you go to yeah. LA, there's a ton of jobs, but there's also a ton of pilots. So I yeah. kind of feel like there's, there's kind of room to grow and, and to make it work wherever you're at is kind of how I yeah. feel about I, it. I mean, and it's a competitive market. If you can be competitive and find your, your stake in it, there is tons of work out there. Um, obviously it's, it's pretty variable, but uh, as far as the stream of work, but there's definitely work to be had. And if, if ran properly, a business is totally viable still in this industry. So I also kind of look at it like, you know, how long have film cameras been, been around like video cameras, like forever. Right. Oh yeah. And, and, and photography as well. And like people aren't just throwing in the hat saying, Oh, everybody's got an iPhone now, so I can't be a photographer. People are making it work. And oh, so yeah. I kind of, I kind of feel like the drone industry is still in its infancy. You know, we've, I feel like, like me and you were kind of like the grandpas, like in the industry. I feel like, like we've been around like, yeah. back in my day, we used to, you know, I'd never know if my <laughs> drone would make it down on on the ground, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, no, it's <laughs> And so anyway, I just kind of feel like there's, we're still at kind of like the very beginning of a burgeoning industry, which is yeah. really cool. 
And definitely it's moving at the speed of light too. You just look at what, what we were operating last year or the year before compared to now. It's just, it changes so fast and everything is for the better. There was a point where I thought, oh man, these multi-rotors are going to be the death of me because anyone can fly one. And there's some truth to that, that it, it did bring a lot more people into the market. But at the same time, it allowed me to do my job better. And it allowed me to uh, expand the horizons of what was previously impossible. Now I can do even more. And I'm not spending all my energy just trying to keep the aircraft in the air. Now I can spend my energy into creating a shot and, and working with the director. And, and, and it, it's just made us much more efficient. So uh, it's all one, been for the better. One word, Alex Moss. <laughs> <laughs> Did yeah. you ever mess with oh. Alex Moss? <laughs> Dude, I had a, a single rotor that was running an Alex Moss gimbal that we built ourselves uh, with an Epic on it. And if you tried to, you know, those Alex Moss gimbals were great uh, at the time for when they a small camera. Yeah. Yes. The, the small camera and a two axis form factor worked great. But once we went to three axis, lifting a big heavy camera, especially yep. on a Try vibration machine pan. like that. Dude, it, Yeah. And we shot some really nice stuff on that. I mean, I shot movies and, and everything on that setup, but oh my God, it was a nightmare. And I was still, I, I wasn't happy with the multi-rotors really. I mean, I, I didn't fully switch until the, the FreeFly Alta series came out. Um, just was never super comfortable with DJI flight controllers on anything but a DJI product. I've had many failures. I'm sure they've uh, fixed that at this point, but um, anyway. Uh, I didn't switch to the Movi as early as many people did because it didn't seem to work on a, a single rotor helicopter just with the G loading mm. and the, even the vibrations on startup normally would just shut the, the Movi off and it would, oh, be, yeah. it would need like a hard reset. Huh, I didn't think so, about that. Yeah, so we still, the Alex Moss allowed us to, to do it, but dude, the, it never held horizon. It didn't, I mean, it didn't hold anything. The stabilization <laughs> at best was like rough. I mean, it was kind of like flying a steady cam, you know, like you're, mm -hmm. you're holding it and aiming it, but you're, it doesn't, if you let go, it's going to just go wherever it wants. It's yep. the, the operator at that point was just as much of a pilot as the pilot of the aircraft. Mm -hmm. So I remember I would spend almost every day of the week tinkering with my Alex Moss setup, <sighs> trying to get it ready for the next shoe. Yeah. Like every day, like I spent all I, I mean, I got gray hairs. I could take off my hat and show you, but I think it's from the Alex Moss setup. It was such a nightmare. Anyway, oh. I'm just saying, like, it's been amazing where things have come. Oh yeah. And um, I remember the I bought the Movi M5 when it when it came out, um, and and the thing just performed flawless, like compared to the the Alex Moss. I know. I was like, hallelujah, holy cow. Anyway, so yeah. can, so can I tell me like your your evolution? from RC helis to where you are now and what you guys are flying now. Yeah. Well, obviously we started out in, uh, you know, with a remote control helicopter it was a T-Rex 700 was the model. Um, we would extend the tail boom to put bigger blades on it and offset the weight. Um, the first revisions or first versions were just pretty basic. I had like custom frame halves built on it. Um, I didn't design them. I just found ones that worked really well. Uh, they were they didn't make it in an electric helicopter when I first started, so it was a nitro helicopter that we converted to electric. Um, yeah, then after that, I had a friend who who helped me start drawing up my own uh, frames that we did. That we'd basically take the motor and flop it behind the main shaft. Everything got pushed back so we could put the camera on the front to balance it all out. Um, and then uh, you know the the next one was an even larger one that was based off a. A goblin driveline if anyone flies rc helicopters it was a nice robust uh driveline that we used on that one but then shifted into a lot of custom built multi-rotors with very marginal success and then it really wasn't until the the free fly alta came out that i was like okay now i can stop being a, a builder and, and trying to be an engineer and i can be you know a pilot and, and an operator yeah um, i kind of feel like that's where we're at these days like i kind of feel like i don't have to sit there and maintain my gear throughout the week i can just like you know maybe put the batteries at 30 to 50 percent get them in maintenance mode and then go enjoy my life and then go yeah. get ready for the next shoot and so it's been a, and that's what that goes along with dji gear as well i mean i've had a lot of catastrophic failures with dji wukong and all that kind of stuff um and so it's nice that dji they've they're coming farther as well it feels oh like. yeah yeah um, and it seems like they're they're um all-inclusive products like the ones that are have an integrated flight controller that they have the motors and speed controllers tuned to it they seem to be much more robust and reliable than what you and i are talking about when it was still the 
you know, I a bought DIY. that flight controller, yeah, yeah, and you're trying to <laughs> mix and match parts, and that's where I, I'm sure the hiccup would have been somewhere in there, but... Oh man, we should um, we should do a whole episode on just like horror stories. I think that'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, I got plenty. <laughs> I got so many too, man. It's insane. Um, yeah, did you happen to see my one where the drone flew away over the Amazon? Um, yeah, I think so. And then you guys found it, right? Yeah, I was stuck like eighty feet up in a tree. Like it yeah. was a miracle that we got it down. Yeah. Anyway, that was one of those stories. Anyway, well, I won't, that's I won't go into that's that one thing. I never had a flyaway. I've had like four flip of deaths just you know they go belly side up and they're done um and then i've just yeah a lot of failures on the the single rotors but they are always some weird electrical mechanical normally just like either right when you're starting up on spool up or right after landing i never had one like mid-flight do anything crazy so i had one where it just i was flying it brand new first shoot with my movi m5 you know i put like five five grand for it yeah Um, it was the last shot of of the day filming some cyclists and all of a sudden it just goes and just takes off Oh. And I was like, I just like is getting ready to like hit the mountain, and so I just like return to home. Please work. I flip it, comes up, comes back, tried to land top of our car. So we we're like standing there, had to grab it with both hands and wait for the motors to shut off. You know, I was like, oh man, that was intense. And so I flipped That's out, funny. you know, and so you like flip out the, you switch out like parts of the flight control, and you just never really yeah. know like what the problem was. And yeah, anyway. maybe it was the GPS puck. Maybe that wasn't <laughs> yeah. updated. I remember there was yeah. issues with that, and the IMUs, certain ones were like not working for you, and they had upgrade IMUs. It was all, man, those were nightmares. <laughs> so basically, if you guys are just kind of getting into this now, you guys are in a good spot. <laughs> yeah, it's a this great a time, time, time to, to get into it. <laughs> For the most part, if you're crashing, it's probably your fault, and that's a, a yes. better thing, a better feeling than just knowing that it could spontaneously give up on you at no point, and you can never trust your gear. At least now you can, you can fairly safely say, if I crash it, it's my fault. And so. that's actually that's one of the questions I get asked a lot: is how many times have you crashed? And I always say, um, I've crashed a lot. But the main thing I feel like is that crashing makes you a more responsible, better pilot, because when something goes wrong and it wasn't your fault, um, you realize that you don't have full control and things can go wrong. And so it makes you a safer pilot. Um, Absolutely. You learn to, to not take chances where it doesn't allow room for an error or failure. Um, and that's a big part of this, you know, um, leaving some sort of headroom. Yep. To, to think of what if, what if something fails now? What if this happens, that happens, but, um, Yeah. And, you know, obviously I've had, uh, you know, through the development of these things, tons of crashes and we've had our share over the past eight years of onset mishaps. Normally with the, you know, older things, it's been a while, knock on wood, but um, there was only one shoot I wasn't able to fully finish. And part of that was due to, uh, you know, there was an explosion that we were shooting on set. Debris went and sucked through the blades of the helicopter. I was able to get it on the ground, but one of the, the blades had lost the ball length that held the blade, the pitch angle. And somehow I got it on the ground, but then that thing flopped and it cut the tail boom off and the whole thing shredded into bits um, on the ground. And that was the one that it was like the first mishap that we had on that that day was a, an electrical failure. And so we were on our backup when it when it when the explosion went through it. And at that point, I'm like, you guys, I got to cut my losses. I, I think that was the only shoot in the past eight years that I haven't completed. Um, we got everything they needed, but come wrap it wasn't like we had any any working equipment so <laughs> oh dang man i had yeah i had one the worst one i had where i couldn't finish it i was filming snowmobiles for polaris like super high elevation and i was trying these new quick release propeller guards no propeller <laughs> twist on yep. things from they like help. taiwan or china or something <laughs> i know exactly what you're talking about yeah <laughs> and uh it was a coaxial setup so i got the motors uh eight eight motors top and bottom with four booms and I was flying about 100 feet up. Get, we're just taking photos of the snowmobiles looking straight down. And um, all of a sudden, I'm sitting there watching. All of a sudden, I hear this, like, fling, and, like, I see one fly off. And I'm like, oh, shoot. So I start to bring it down. All of a sudden, another one from, from the same boom goes, boom. Oh, and you're it done. Just, and then it, just, it just, just rotates. I'm just watching it fall 100 feet, just, like, almost in slow motion. And then, boom, it hits. And we go over and, and check it out. It was buried three feet under the snow. The frame, uh, a battery caught on fire, so there's, like, a fire under the snow, like, coming up through. We're smelling all the gases. I'm trying to, like, save it. Anyway, like, most of it survived, surprisingly. Yeah. 
And that's but the I thing. I, yeah. I've had a lot that survived. Continue your story. But that it's the funny thing. A lot of times they're a lot more, um, I guess, repairable than you'd think. You, you kind of see like the aftermath and you're like, my life is over. Like, oh, also I've, I've had some experiences where I've, I've had crashes where, you know, of cold, cold batteries and stuff. And I, I honestly said like, I'm crazy to do this. Like, why am I flying my family's livelihood in the air? Should I, should I quit right now? Should I just throw in the towel? You know, but once you kind of like calm down, you kind of assess the damage and you realize, oh, it's not an $8,000 loss. It's like a $1,500 loss, you know? And so it kind of turns into that kind of a thing. But yeah, I have, I'll, I'll share one story on this. That was like my worst one. Um, there was a job with the Atlantis in the Bahamas, big one. They were going to have us out there for over a week. They wanted like the whole kit and caboodle. And then, um, it, it, they had basically booked us, but then some other guy swooped in and he was flying the DJI S 800 right when it came out, flying one of theirs, the first Zen Muse gimbal. And I was like, I don't know if I trust these. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And it basically came down to, okay, I'll buy that setup um, to get this job if it's the difference between hiring us and not. So I bought an S800. I bought the NEX5, which was the camera on it. I bought the Zen Muse and all the lenses and the whole nine. And then right before the shoot, the director says, well, I want to shoot on the GH2. So then I had to go buy I bought a GH2. I bought the Zen Muse for that, which was like 3500 bucks plus camera, plus all the lenses and everything. But then they wanted to kind of shoot both. So I, I had a Cinestar 8 with all the GPS nav boards, everything. I had to buy another Wukong as a dummy to even run the gimbal. So this was like twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 of a drone. And at that time, that was a lot. And last day of the shoot, they, they had flown our, our girlfriends out as like kind of a bonus if we stayed and shot an extra half day for free. And we're like, sure, you know, they let us swim with the dolphins in an all-inclusive resort. It was cool. Um, but of course, on that free day, last one, it was like, I got really low, checked the monitor. There was a wave. I Yeah, I don't know. I That was like, it was my fault without oh. a doubt. But I looked away and looked oh. back just in time to see a splash oh. out in the ocean. And that one was a, that was a total loss. We sent oh, out divers and they... They they got the aircraft back, and I guess I got a, a frame out of it that was all that was usable, but every piece of electronics was completely fried. The thing was toast. That was like oh. a $12,000 $12, uh, hit, and I did not have insurance coverage on that. Oh, <laughs> so. dang, man. <laughs> yeah, it hurt. That was a painful one. Luckily, um, with that one, that client ended up being a very good client of ours for years to come, so it paid off over time, but there was definitely that, that first little bit that was painful. So that's a good point is like, I feel like it's good to go over and beyond and almost invest in your clients if you can. Like, I mean, you bend over backwards. If they're, if I'm scheduled for a half day and they end up needing me for like three quarters of a day or a full day, even like I want them to be happy with me and happy with, with my shots. That's what I'm passionate about. And I think by doing that kind of stuff, that's what gets you that re- that repeat work. If you're like, oh, sorry, man, we're five minutes over. I gotta I gotta get home. You know, you're you're not gonna get hired again if you if you do that. Yeah, like. and you know, uh, actually, my old boss Jerry Dugan, who's now uh, working with me as my camera operator, he's a director DP uh, for his main job, but he likes doing this stuff on the side. It's kind of a little side income, keeps him current, and we, he gets to go be a fly on the wall on other shoots that sometimes directors he was bidden against get. Um, but he said something to me right when I started this, that was like one of the best words of wisdom. And he told me, he said, Hey Trent, right now you're one of the best out there and you're the only one doing it. But soon that's not going to be the case. He said, at some point there's going to be a lot of people that know what they're doing. A lot of people are good at it. So you, you have to be someone that's easy to work with someone that's enjoyable to work with and that they want to work with again. And a lot of it, that's so, so much of that is, is um, I think what's kept us afloat is, being easy to work with, being enjoyable, likable, you know, they should have fun when they're working with you because the drone stuff's cool. It's fun. If, if you can make it an enjoyable experience and they get as good of footage and they're paying about the same as they would with other people, they're going to hire you again. Mm-hmm. So, um, and obviously there's, it's a double edged sword cause you don't want to give too much away or be too nice because it's pretty easy to get that taken might take advantage, advantage of. of you. Yep. Yeah. And in yep. this industry, man, they, they're, the, those those producers and, and production managers, they know if they can see that there's a slight opening for things. Oh, well, let's cut it in half. You can do it for half rate, right? You know, <laughs> the, start name dropping directors and DPs and stuff. And there's oh, definitely a, an art to figuring out what, at what time. I mean, because, you know, the, there's points where you could even shooting for free on, on the right stuff will benefit your company. Mm-hmm. And everyone should do that to help build a company or build their, their name Demo and their business. Real. Yeah. yeah. 
but uh, yeah, exactly. And it goes on your portfolio. It's it's now a notch in your belt. But you got to be careful because it's so easy to get taken advantage of. And once they get used to these deals that you've given them, you're never going to get full rate out of them later. Yep. You know, yep. there's a joke that again Jerry and I have always gone back and forth with. People will say, "Hey, do us a favor on on this one and work half rate, and we'll pay you full on on the next <laughs> one." And we always like to joke back, well, how about you pay us double on this one and we'll do the next one for free. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> It's the same thing, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. No, that is a great point. So let's go let's kinda of talk about let's go into kind of working with, with the client. Uh, let's let's talk about kind of etiquette on set. What are some of the things is there anything kinda of like in particular that you do on set to kind of you know, stay out of, out of people's way, make sure people are happy. Stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, uh, being invisible is, is always a benefit. You're not, you're not out there to have a pop-up shop trying to hand out merchandise and make people pumped on your company, you know, or even like point, start a conversation. Like, no, like I, you're, you're, you're not there to be like, Hey, what's up? You know, my name's whatever. What's your name? Do you have any kids? Like, like just shut up. Like don't yeah. talk to anybody. Yeah. Right? <laughs> out of sight, out of mind and be ready at all times. So, you know, they're going to hand you a radio on set, be listening to that. And you should know what the, the schedule is and kind of have an idea that if they're ready to move on from whatever they're shooting, if you're standing by that, you could be up next. So is everything ready to, to be, you know, at the snap of a finger as quickly as you can ready? Because that's, a, again, no one wants to be waiting on you. If you're slowing down a production, that's a hundred, 200, $300,000 shooting day. Uh, you know, time is money to them and you're costing them money if you're slowing them down. So being ready right then is the best way. Obviously, the if sunset's coming, it, magic hour turns panic hour every time. They're going to want a drone shot. Be ready and be ready with all your batteries on standby. Have everything ready to just power through that last hour of the day and into dark because it happens without a doubt every time. And that's been the, the thing that has got us uh, a ton of repeat work was just, you know, a DP that never worked with us, but had good experience with, with other companies. Um, so I wouldn't say that they felt the door was open and they were excited to, to have a new company out there. But once they saw how, how eager and ready we were at sunset and how we kind of saved a shoot by doing that, they're like, okay, these are, these are our, our new guys. So, Oh, that's awesome, man. Um, yeah, I've had an experience. It was a Lexus shoot on the salt flats and it was a, big production man huge production like dancers out there with cars doing donuts around them and all kinds of stuff and we literally sat there all day they didn't call for us all day except for like to try and piggyback shots with the camera car so they have a camera car have you ever done that uh, yeah, like that's... hey can you guys try and get some shots <laughs> on the camera shoot cars around them <laughs> like i'm on a wide lens and i see the whole world <laughs> yeah they're Great. like yeah. they're like yeah just see if you can cut them out so i'm like you know, flying over the top of the camera car, trying oh, to like yeah. get shots that work. And it's just, it, it kind of yeah. feels like drone guys kind of get like this. We're like, we're like the second backup almost option. A lot of the times I feel like it's more like the ground camera car stuff is first priority. And then they, Oh, do we have time for a drone shot? Yeah. Let's pop them up and let's get a few things. But, uh, we seriously, like they didn't like call for us to get any main shots the entire day. And then, um, the sun had gone down like you know like that super golden just like pink sky it looked gorgeous but they're like okay drones let's go and we're just like oh crap so we're like trying to get ready um there's people standing all around the drone and the director's from like france or something he's like get up get up on the air i'm like i'm like there's people everywhere we got to clear this stuff you know and i finally get up and we get a couple shots he was getting pretty frustrated but um and so it was just kind of it's just intense you just got to be like ready to go and it was the alex moss days too i think think or maybe it was i think it was movie so it wasn't quite as bad that adds a whole another layer of issues with the oh. alex moss gimbals but um and so um you know we ended up i ended up looking at the commercial and i ended up using like five or six of our shots even the piggyback ones so i ended up working out i think yeah. all right but um it's intense man like those like you like that's so true like you just got to be ready to go um it's easy to kind of like sit in your car and just kind of like put the seats back and just chill just it's it's hurry hurry up and wait right that's what the industry yeah. is saying is and it's so true hours and hours of boredom punctuated by stark moments of terror that's what errol used to say all the time <laughs> that's that, so true it, it really is <laughs> and you know just even say you you did your morning shot then they're going to swap to whatever other shooting a cam or, or you know, arm car or something like that and that's a good time for you to just set up and be ready that, that uh, you know if they were to call you you already have a new battery loaded on you're ready to go all it is is powering on and taking off like just have everything ready 
try to think ahead. Be mm-hmm. you know, you know what you're going to have to do. It's it's your standard thing. So just think ahead, and that'll always save you. Like um, always check like like card space. Like is my cards yeah. ready to go? Yeah. Are, is my monitor? Is my client monitor ready to go? Does my feed work that goes to the client village? The client village is like the video villages where all you know the big monitors are for all the directors. For those that don't know, um, just got to be just just ready. Yeah, and and a lot of times just a simple talk at the start of the day with the assistant director and saying, hey, you know, to help streamline this process, if you can give me a five minute warning before I need to be spooling up, that'll save a ton. And and normally a, a lot of the ads nowadays kind of understand that, um, but I still like to have that talk. Hey, if you give me that five minute warning, I will be ready right when you tell me. And uh, then just beware, they're probably going to give you a five-minute warning, and then it's like 20 minutes later, so you're going to be <laughs> burning batteries sitting on the ground. <laughs> I, had but, a, yeah. I had a producer, and he would be like, it was for like a, a big car commercial, he's like, he's like how much time do you guys need to get going? I'm like, about 15. He's like, you got seven. <laughs> He'd cut it in half every time. <laughs> how much time? Yeah. About five. He's like, you got two minutes. <laughs> I'm like, all right, here we go, you know. Yep. Anyway. I think that's pretty much and you can tell them, yeah, in the morning, you know, f- from the case full build out kind of thing, I need, and I'll tell them I need 45 minutes. It's normally like 15. But even when I when I give them the 45 and know that I only need 15, it's somehow, it's like we get on set and they say, how long do you guys need? Can you fly right now? I'm like, we just pulled up. Like, call time <laughs> yeah. was right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, just, you know, the more prepared you can be, the better you're going to look to them. Um, the more likelihood that they're going to have a good experience and then hire you back and it'll lead to a bunch of hopefully repeat work with a great customer or client cool. of yours. No, so. That's some great info. Also, just a, a vocabulary alert you mentioned was call time. What is call call time for those people that, that don't know? Call time is uh, basically your report time to set. Uh, most of the time it's on set, but when they say you have a 6 a.m. call, that would mean be on set at 6. Sometimes they'll say your call time is a 6 a.m. leave, which would be like a 6 a.m. leave from the hotel if it's a travel job. Um, a lot of times if it's a 6 a.m. call, they'll say breakfast is ready at 5.30, meaning if you want to have breakfast, you should show up early and still be ready at your call time. Um, what else? That's, yeah, that's the main thing with call times is just knowing knowing that portion of it. And if you have questions, you can always ask talk, talk to the producer and ask them exactly what they mean when they're on the email or whatever. Um, yeah. I hate asking those kind of questions yeah, though. I hate asking Cause those then questions. It, it like shows that you're, you're, you're like, you're unknowledgeable and maybe unexperienced. <laughs> so maybe, exactly. maybe phone a friend. <laughs> Google. Yeah. It. That's a good idea. <laughs> Give a call to, to a uh, tramp Palmer. He'll, he'll, he'll help, help you out there. No, yeah. Stupid questions. I mean, we all ask them, but I try to keep them to a minimum to, to not, you know, at some point you, it's trial by fire in this industry. And, you know, the way you you get experiences by uh, having experiences. So so getting out there and and building that time is what will make you um, good at doing this. But there's that little range where obviously at some point we all got hired for a job that was probably outside of our realm of of what we're used to or our pay grade. Maybe it was a little above what we were ready for. And that's your time to just kind of get it together, you know, be ready (laughs) and uh, try to learn (laughs) as you go. Yeah, just figure it out. If you feel like you're getting in the way on a set, you probably are. So that's one thing to to be aware of. Again, finding that quiet corner, just getting out of the way, turning your radio on, um, and being ready at any moment is probably the best um, way to stay uh, invisible yet um, appropriate on set. Perfect. Um, Really quick, um, I have a bunch. I always have um, kind of DPs who have, you know, camera op for for pilots before. And so they try and cut the budget by having them camera out for me. Do you ever do that or do you try and stick with your own, your own guys? You know, I've, I've done it and I, I don't do that anymore. It's just, you know, when you, when you're hiring copter kids, you're hiring a, a company that I hold to a certain standard and I cannot guarantee that standard when you start throwing in a variable like that. Cause honestly that it's just even just learning the gear or whatever, it's easy for them to um, like a DP that, might have some experience with it, but it's easy for them to um, basically make it our issue or say that it's, you know, even if they're screwing it up, all of a sudden it looks like it's copter kids screwing up or it's me screwing up. So just the the least amount of variables um, mm-hmm. possible is kind of my, my uh, approach to these things. So I have a couple guys that I work with. If one's not available, I have a backup operator, but I don't allow um, other guys to just come and aim the camera. And if they want to, I still make them hire my aerial DP um, to come with us, and he can kind of get everything set up. Kind and of then, direct, you know, yeah. Make yeah. sure, make sure the guy knows what he's what he's doing. 
Yeah, and at that point, if if things aren't going right, we can throw him in there, and he can at least act as a a translator and aerial coordinator because so much of this is the communication between the pilot and the operator. And if you're on different pages, you're not going to get anything done. You could be the best operator in the world with the best pilot in the world, but if you're on different wavelengths, nothing's going to work. So let's let's, let's, kind of dive into that section. How do you communicate with, um, first of all, let's talk about your crew. What are kind of the, how do you communicate with them? So, I mean, I'm not a fan of, you know, I'm not a a walk and fly kind of guy. I know a lot of pilots like to um, just follow the drone around and go fly from weird places. I like to set up where I know that I can see the entire shot and set my camera operator right next to me. And then I'll have my visual observer who's got our little clipboard with, you know, all our flight logs, as well as a monitor that show the diagnostics off the aircraft, like battery voltage. And if there's any errors. He'll stand right next to me. He's got the the live feed off the FPV camera. I just fly line of sight, and then I'm standing right next to my operator, and I can glance down at his monitor. So I'm not someone that uses any sort of intercom headsets or anything like that. I just feel funny getting too kitted out and having things dangling off me. I don't use mm-hmm. the belly belt like radio tray. I just mm-hmm. handhold. I'm old school. so um, That's how I did it too. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's just what works for me. I will say that... Um, Obviously, positioning the pilot in the proper place is huge. I, I think that's overlooked a lot that you say, oh, I have a drone. I can just fly it there. I mean, that's true. But if you take an extra five minutes on the ground to figure out where your best place to, to fly from, to operate, to see exactly what you're doing, um, in my experience, taking that extra minute always uh, leads to more efficient and more productive work. So always, so. yeah, always walk the location because um, you'll be surprised um, especially as far as safety is concerned, like if there's any kind of power line or just trees anywhere, like I always walk it and I look around. I even like swoop down almost like a, like a raptor or a chicken, like just kind of like move my head around and kind of yeah. get a good feel for the 3D kind of aspect of the environment. Um, yeah. And then and perspective. Up, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, that's uh, that brings up a whole different thing. And it's a conversation I've had with so many directors that, you know, I'm flying line of sight still. I don't fly off an FPV feed. I just haven't gotten to the point where I trust it enough to do that as my primary um, navigating aid. Mm-hmm. So I'm still flying line of sight. And there'll be times they say, what's your range? And I, I say a conservative number is like a thousand feet. I think that's a pretty safe, you know, we're low range aerials. I'm, I'm normally close to the action. Um, and I've been pushed out much farther than that. And then there's times where it's like, I'm like, I can't get any closer that far away because I can't see it that well. And the director will look at it and say, I can see it right there. And I'm like, yeah, I know that you can see it, but can you tell me how many feet it is from the tree behind it? Mm-hmm. And and what what you get into is a whole different visual science. And obviously when we're within 40 feet, our, our vision's binocular. We use the, the, the differentiation and the offset of our two eyes to, to dictate distance. Once you get beyond that, you're using other visual cues that our brain doesn't even think about to to figure out how far away you are, like scale, as well as how you were talking. Getting that little bit of parallax shift will tell you how far away you are. But once you get, you know, if you're flying an aircraft that's a thousand feet away and there's trees that are say twelve hundred feet away, yeah, yeah, you're not putting yourself in a position where you have a good judgment of distance. So you know, obviously, if you're in blue sky and you can see blue sky and you're flying a, a line right away from you, you know you'll never hit anything. Sure, I can fly the dot until I almost can't see it anymore. Assuming yeah. So basically, what he's saying. Wrong, but. So what he's saying is, um, if there's like a tree line, and you can see the little you know black speck of the drone above the tree line, you know you're not going to hit it because you know that you're above it, right? Correct. And so you can just shoot out as far as you need to and know that you're not going to hit it. Yeah. And that's the same thing when you do like, say, a converging shot, which we do all the time in a car commercial where you're coming right at it and blow over the car. A, a chicken shot. Um, that's what I call yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Converged chicken. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. We've called them all that. But cool. that that's one that's, you know, a lot of times they're going to ask that you start right on the on the road at road level and then, you know, raise up and just blow right over the top of the car. Mm-hmm. Well, for something like that, I end up placing myself basically standing on the center line and I tell the precision driver, don't hit me. Yep. And you end up crouching down so you can get that better line to where you can keep your aircraft in the blue sky above it. Yep. Um, as long as you're in blue sky, you'll never hit the car. If I'm standing up and it looks like I'm right at eye level of the car, there's a chance that I won't climb in time and you can hit it. But if you're looking straight at the roof of the car and your skids are, you know, to your vision, six inches above it, you'll never hit it. And you can get as close as you want, assuming, you know, leave a little leeway. <laughs> yeah. But um, that's a good way that you can 
um, adjust your your perspective to help you operate through a shot that you know a lot of people I don't think think about. So yep. So just make sure that you're you're above it. Even like you said, like I'll like you said, I'll, I'll kneel down on my knees, crouching down just like as low as possible, um, depending on on the shot. And those precision drivers, man, they drive fast. Yeah. They they get up and go, and they're like that's their job, right? Is to drive fast. So yeah. Um, um, let's see, what should we go to next? Um, let's kind of move into specific interactions with the DP and directors. Um, I feel like there's different types of DPs and directors. They kind of work with drone crews differently. Um, what's some of your experiences or maybe the types of DPs? Oh, first of all, a DP stands for director of photography, which is the guy who's in charge of kind of the visual aesthetics of the film. He, um, he goes, he's the one that chooses like the aperture, the lenses, the camera, the frame rate, polarizers, no polarizers, neutral density filters. Um, and usually you'll, you'll, you'll work with him, but sometimes you'll work with the director as well. So can you talk a little bit about your, your process? Yeah. And obviously the way I like to, um, cliff note that is the director is the one that says what he wants to tell or what he wants to have happen. The DP is the one that says how they're going to show it. So he's the visual side, like you said. Um, You know, a lot of times we end up with director and DP with us, uh, and it totally depends on the the shoot and um, who's working with you. Sometimes if if there's a multi-camera shoot, uh, the DP might be over with a different camera and you end up with the director with you. Sometimes you just end up with the DP because the director's got something else going on or he's back at Video Village like you're talking about, and he's just watching all the feeds at the same time and, and talking with client and the producer. So... Um, all that's pretty variable and there can be, I would, I would say a lot of directors are DPs or were previously DPs and some DPs direct as well. So they can kind of go interchangeably, I would say at times. Um, and yeah, those are the main guys that, that you will be working with and you will be talking to about the shots. They're not the people that you go up to, to ask questions about where the bathroom is or what time Mm -hmm. lunch is. Um, those, those, they have bigger things going on <laughs> at that point. You should go, I mean, an assistant they are, director. So, so the DP and the director, they are like the head honchos on the set. Yep. So you do not speak to them. They speak to you, um, until they speak to you. Then you can yeah. ask questions and, um, what is your process for kind of figuring out their, their vision once you, once they kind of come to you and be like, okay, drone guys, you know, what is your kind yeah. of process? Uh, you know, it's it's a very adaptive one because, as you've known, there's just so many uh, different styles of directing that, that both directors and DPs will have. Um, I think you mentioned before, asked me at some point about, you know, are there ones that are, are very hard-headed in their ways or, or, or things like that? And you'll, you'll know that right away when there's a director or DP that's going to come and, and have this, this perfectly crafted shot in his head and he wants that and nothing else. And a lot of times, just due to limitations in the aircraft or the environment you're flying in, sometimes they aren't possible, but hmm. there's a way to, to cater it in a different way. And um, a lot of times, uh, if something's not possible uh, and someone asks if it's possible and I'm kind of concerned about it, I'll start with no. But um, that way you can kind of just drop them down and not get their hopes up too high, but then say, but I can work it this way. As opposed to saying, uh, or let me think about it. Because as soon as you start saying that, they're going to say, well, if I ask it the right way, he's going to do it. Mm-hmm. So um, I've gotten I don't caught know that in that trap before. <laughs> I've gotten yeah. caught in that trap before. <laughs> so starting with, uh, it, you know, can we do this? And I'll say, no, well, give me a second. Let me let me look at this or or could we do it like this? It'll tell the same story. It'll, it'll, it'll help your piece in the same way. And I, I, I can guarantee I'll have more success this way than what you were trying. And then... Obviously, there's there's certain directors or DPs that will hire us that um, respect our our knowledge and and what we bring to the table with our experience, and they'll kind of give us leeway to to help them. You know, shoot something good. These are the things I like. There's other ones that are so locked in their ways that they literally will fight you through an entire shoot. And I still have yet to find an answer for those guys. Most of the time, it's kind of just do your best to do what they they tell you, and and hopefully they hire you again. But those are the the least pleasant and I keep thinking they'll go away and it's gotten better now that um, a lot of directors have had more experience with drones Uh, in the early ages I think the the limitations in them were pretty unknown so you know we were the first time a a director would work with a drone and they don't know what the limitations are so they're trying to do things that were just outside the realm of possible with that that tool I've fallen into that trap before and um and it made life very stressful I think one of the problems is um 
trying to be a yes man. I think you need to be a yes man as much as possible. But yep. I think that's a great point of view is to kind of, if it's something you know is going to be like almost impossible or dangerous, say no and then say, but let me think about it for a second and see if we can figure out a way around it. Um, I had a shoot with, it was a big car, car commercial. It was a first time director. He was like a stunt double for Mel Gibson and some some big Mel Gibson movies. Those stunt and, guys, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and it was his first time directing. And um, and he literally would tell us how we were going to get our shots and where we were going to stand and how it was going to work. And he'd never worked, worked with drones before. And I would try and try and like be like, okay, like I can try and get it from there, but it'd be easier if I'm in the back of the truck as we're you know driving along with these six cars doing their things or whatever. And he turned into like a three-year-old and like, oh yeah, and like and was like pouting and like turning around, swearing under his breath. And I'm looking at the first AD like, what the freak is going on? And he came to me. And he's like, you know, it's his first time directing. Just you just gotta be like straight up with him. And I tried that, and it made things worse. He actually, um, we were doing that shot we were talking about, that chicken shot. So we had six sports cars coming at us, and I was, you know, I was dead center right in them, so I can get that straight line right over the top. And my assistant was standing next to the director. And the director told the stunt guys to run us over. Like, just kind of, I'm sure he was kidding, obviously. Yeah. But um, that's kind of like the the mentality. And my, 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 my camera op and I, on that shoot, it was like a two-day shoot, we were like, we should just quit this industry. It was like seriously like the worst shoot yeah. experience ever. Um, yeah, no, I think we all have had those, and I'm sure I'll have more. There's just, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it, it's an just awesome job. Yeah. It can be super fun, but with that comes the bad. But, um yeah, going back to your thing about saying no, I think the hardest thing in this industry for me has been learning when to say no. Because, um, you know, we all are going out there. We're trying to do a good job. We want to please everyone. Um, and a lot of times, you know, Kodak Courage doesn't only work in front of the camera. Sometimes behind the camera, you're going to feel like you should do a little more than maybe you were comfortable with because the situation calls for it. And learning when to say no because of safety or because of limitations and, and possible failures is is a an important thing and it's one of the hardest things um of my job so yeah especially when you're probably just kind of starting out trying to get your foot in the door that's probably really hard to say no yeah especially when it's like a bigger client and you want to impress them and make them happy but but the whole thing comes down to you are the pilot in command you are responsible for the safety of that craft if anything happens it's on your shoulders so absolutely just got to keep that in mind yeah um so i feel like there's kind of three different types of DPs and directors there's you kind of mentioned them there's the the one that kind of trusts you and lets you kind of they're like hey go we're going to send you with like a car yeah, for the half the day it's freaking amazing because <laughs> yeah, those are, the, those are you, great because you can just like shine you have like your own stunt you know driver doing their thing and you can just get creative and do multiple takes and just get get the shots and the client loves it because they trust you and um and then you've got the guys who um you know, try and tell you and dictate, um, everything that you should do. And then you've got the guys who are kind of in between and those guys are totally fine too. Yeah, I mean, that's I, they're I, all, the, yeah. the biggest, uh, group of them are the ones that, you know, have a, a, an idea, but they're willing to work with you. And those are the best. They're the most efficient. And, you know, to some extent, if they all just said, Hey, go out and shoot what you do. Um, I don't know that we would progress at what we do because you kind of would find what works and you keep doing the same thing. So having right. someone push you to try something new is how you, you build this experience and build the, this bag of tricks that you have for your shots is by trying new things. So sometimes having so the true. right director to push you and um, that helps. That kind of brings me to um, what what kind of excites you? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. You've been doing a lot of these shoots. You do a lot of car car shoots, and um, I mean, you've done a lot of feature films, I'm sure as well. What kind of excites you as far as like shots? Uh, you know, anything that you feel you could use on your reel is always fun. I think if you're like, this is really good stuff. Obviously, a lot of that comes to lighting and what you're shooting. I, you know, it sounds like you and I both shoot cars, a lot of sheet metal, um, which I have a lot of fun shooting that. It's always dynamic. We're always in, in very beautiful places shooting new products that I, I'm a car guy. I like cars anyway. So new things that aren't even out yet, I can have fun doing that. And then we end up on a lot of these um, product launch videos for off-road vehicles that are also very fun. And some of them are stunt oriented and, cool. you know, it's kind of like if they only have one shot to do some world record jump and you <laughs> have to be at the right place in the right time and not in the other camera shots. And it's really putting you through the paces as far as what, 
you know, you can do and you cannot screw up. Those are my favorite, honestly. And then the big feature stuff, because a lot of times they only allocate 10 minutes to get their drone shots and they, they have a very specific thing they need. And, um, that's really where I think, you know, I shine at least in this stuff is just being right where they need me when they need me and doing it right the first time. Um, a lot of times, you know, if we're just shooting, establishing beauty shots of something, I'm like, yeah, I guess you can go hire some of the new guys, Mm -hmm. but, um, where my experience really shines is in the, the kind of intensive, stressful environment of large, you know, movie sets and really high end commercial sets. We recently did a shoot with David Fincher, um, on Mindhunter, his show that he just came out with on Netflix and he had never worked with a drone before and a director as big as him. That was like, you know, don't screw this up. And of course it was at night in the rain over a a city street with like a hundred extras. It was a big coordinated shot and he likes repeatability. He wants to do the shot 50 times. And I was just like ready for this guy to rip us apart. And he loved it. Everything Mm -hmm. weren't perfect. And that was one of those that I'm like, okay, that was, (laughs) that was a good shoot. But I will say in the, in the midst of it, I don't know that it's that enjoyable at the moment, but once you get through it and you're yeah. like that, I was gonna say, that worked out really well. I was going to say, there's like, it is incri- like, there's nothing like the feeling after a shoot where you're stoked, the client is stoked and you're driving home and it's like this magical feeling. Have you had that before? Oh yeah. And it, it <laughs> only comes from the, the trying and the tasking ones. Exactly. The ones where you're really like, okay, I need a beer after that because... <laughs> that was a day but those are the best that you're like all my gears you know together all yeah you know, everyone everything's in one piece we totally accomplished what they wanted it was it was a lot of work but man that was you know that, that's a good feeling i know we exactly got the epic shots about. yeah yeah um there was one experience i want to share really quick i had a shoot with robert duvall one of his feature films came through utah and he had a dp there and that was actually a referral from my other competitor in utah so that was a good good thing i had the relationship so that that job came came from there that's a good testament of that and um i'm I'm on set it's a pretty big set and it was like a stunt crash scene right like this car runs into a thing and something explodes or something and i go up to the dp he's like this old guy from uh new from new york he's like this old dp like old timer and um, i'm like hey i'm chris i'm i'm the drone guy and um he's like hey he's like um he said um he said three things um he said, cool. Um, he said, first thing, stay out of my shot. Second thing, we're not going to wait for you. And then get me an effing good shot. <laughs> That's what he said. And I was like, holy crap. So imagine this, this like, like I had to set up kind of like off the set a little bit so I could not get in their shots. Um, and it was a one take thing. So they had, they were going to drive the, they were going to drive it and crash it. And so, and they, they didn't allot like a PA with me or anything to tell me when they were going to roll or anything. So I'm just sitting there watching, like waiting for something to happen. And I do a flight cause I thought they were going to go, but then ended up not. So I landed, I had to change our batteries really quick cause they were, could go at any moment. And then I, I take off and then they end up going and I end up getting into the spot I thought was best. And it was like an, it was like an okay shot. Like if, if we would have been able to plan it with him better, it would have turned out so much better, but I, I go and I show it to him and he's like, this is effing incredible. And I'm like, oh, dang. He's like, I got to go and show Bobby, who's, you know, Robert Duvall. And so he goes and shows it to Robert Duvall. And he's like, oh, this is great. This is great stuff. Anyway, he ended up loving us for the rest of that shoot. But it was really intense, like that first. Yeah. Like, we're not going to wait for you. You just get me a good shot, you know? Yeah. And so. Yeah. You, certain times you go on set and the, that first conversation, without them seeing it, they're kind of saying, I don't know you, but I don't like you. Exactly. And so it's like yeah. you're starting on the wrong foot and you're like, oh man, now I got to build out of this. And <laughs> they had a bad experience with someone and then now they just got a bad taste in their mouth with drones. And then you got to go and try to, you know, come out of that. Or some DPs, you know, they'll have a preferred vendor than, than say us, but we get hired because the director likes us. And then you've got a DP that's already sour because he wanted his other guys. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely things to get through. And I've had those exact conversations. Hey, get out of my shot. Don't screw up. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so Trent, how do you stay excited about your line of work? Is there any like extracurricular stuff that, that you do to kind of stay focused and excited or, uh, you know, I, when it comes down to it, I'm a filmmaker. I love, I love creating this kind of content and being a part of the, the whole film crew. And it's a, a dynamic industry. So I have not found a time that I haven't enjoyed it, but, um, 
you know, recently I've been doing some stupid stuff that doesn't even involve Copter Kids, just a YouTube video um, through the FAA uh, Modernization per Act or whatever it was of 2012 with the exemption program. They required pilots like you and I to get our uh, real pilot's license. Um, in doing so, I, I mean, going into it, I hated flying. I was terrified of it. But by the time I got my certificate, I'm like, what airplane am I going to buy? And so since then, I've I bought a little two-seat bush plane and I fly that thing around. And so I've I've started on the side just doing some you know documenting our adventures in these bush planes for a youtube channel and it's kind of been fun to keep the creative juices flowing as far as being involved in the entire process of of creating films um rather than just the pilot that you know is, is placing the camera where they need it so obviously it's nowhere near on the the quality or even in the same industry as what i work in but it's been a fun thing that kind of has kept those creative juices flowing kept me excited about um, just film in a, in a whole. I don't think I could ever, you know, do any other industry. If I wasn't going to be a drone pilot, I would, I, I mean, I'll do anything else on set rather than <laughs> go into a different industry at this point. So no, that's awesome. And you guys need to check out his channel. What is your, your YouTube channel? Oh, I don't know. They, they gave me some weird thing. It's Trent Palmer one, or just, just search Trent Palmer. I'm sure I come up, but <laughs> cool. So yeah. So you have yeah. to check out his channel. He's got incredible footage flying these bush planes. I actually, from looking at some of your stuff back when you first bought your plane, I actually looked into the costs and everything. It seems like it's pretty affordable. Yeah, to get it's, into. it's it's insane to me um, how unknown these these aircrafts are. The Kit Fox that I fly, and and even that similar type that I it seems like that. Um, realm of, of aviation should have been rejuvenating aviation because general aviation as a whole has been slowly declining since, you know, way back in the sixties and seventies, it's just dying out. It's cost prohibitive to a lot of people and everyone thinks it's overridden with regulations and all that. But the type of flying I do, it's, um, you know, my airplane, for instance, burns four gallons an hour and I can run car gas. So if I wow. buy it three, three bucks a gallon, I'm spending $12 an hour in gas. Holy I get 20, cow. 25 miles to the gallon. So it's not like that expensive. The oil costs a little bit, but it is an experimental uh, category aircraft because it was built from a kit. So I can do all the maintenance myself. Um, they're much more simple to work on than any of the modern cars. It's like they're they're just fun, um, awesome hobbies to have. But yeah, the the cost of entry can be expensive, but not as expensive as a lot of people think a lot less than a, a brand new car these days so yeah like 20 to 30 or something like that to like the base base yeah. model probably or yeah you, yeah you can get into like a, a a rough bush plane which is fine i mean it doesn't have to be a looker but yeah 20 to 30 uh i think i paid 40 for mine i got a killer deal and i've i've dumped a bunch of money into it now for a similar aircraft i think you're in the 60 65 range but um they hold value it's not like a car that you buy it and you drive it off the lot and it loses 10 grand. Mine, right. if anything, has, has appreciated since I've bought it. So, wow. um, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm up on it. So that's always a good thing. And there's really good loans. So getting into it isn't as hard as I think a lot of people think. Um, you know, and an aircraft loan isn't a regular three or five year loan. They're 10, 15 years. So the, the, the payments aren't that bad and it appreciates or, or holds value. So you're going to get out of it what you put into it. So it's a, it's definitely a whole different realm of aviation that I've enjoyed, um, you know, partaking in and it's fun sharing it using my skill set uh, as a filmmaker as well. So that's awesome, man. Yeah. I've, I'm tempted to get into that someday. I've got, I've, I've still, I've got like the flight jitters still like kind of like you had. Yeah. Um, cause I never actually got my, my pilot's license, um, during the whole three, three, three thing. I kind of boycotted it <laughs> at the time. Yeah, no, and I was I did everything I could until it was like I can't pay my bills without this. Yeah, so dude. yeah. I so. just bit the bullet, and I had a friend that was a, a flight instructor, which obviously having someone oh, you're comfortable out. with, yeah, yeah, and and having a cheaper route into it was beneficial. But you need to come out sometime. Come fly with me, and I've got to change your mind. Yeah, yeah, I want it's, to. It's a whole different way of flying than what you're used to. So. Oh man, I would I'd love to to give it a shot, man. That that would yeah. be sweet. All right, last last question. Um what are the kind of the three biggest mistakes that you might have made in your drone business that you could share that could help out other people in their drone businesses? I think one of the biggest was um just feeling the need to buy every piece of equipment and thinking that the equipment was what was leading the the industry. So 
there was a time that any new item that came out to remain relevant, I felt like I had to buy that. I had to be the first guy on set shooting with it and all this. And it ended up being a year of just, you know, I mean, I guess I made money off my operator rate, but my company didn't make a penny because every rental I took was going right towards spending it on new gear. And then I was like, you had so much going on. It just ended up being really costly. And um, I got spread thin by trying to maintain more than I should have. So I think um, letting the gear drive me too much at some point was an issue. At the end of the day, uh, you're selling a service, you're an operator, um, you know, your gear rental is going to get priced appropriately for whatever the gear is. Don't let the gear be your, your driving force in getting jobs. There is a point, obviously, that, I mean, you and I both saw that, like, to, to hang in the stream of work that you're looking for, you have to have the right equipment, but that doesn't mean you have to go overkill and, um, you know, just try to build an equipment kit that you're bragging about um, to, to get jobs. You are, you are flying drones for a living, man. Like, how cool is that? Does it, like, sometimes I feel like we, we, you know, doing this for so long, you know, it might get a little monotonous, but still, like, we're flying drones for a living. Like, how cool uh, yeah. is that? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. There's definitely no complaints from me. I'm, I'm one of those guys that, like, if, you know, you go around the table at Thanksgiving saying what you're thankful for, and I'm like, I don't want to say it because it's cheesy. Because <laughs> like, sometimes my life doesn't feel real. I, like, make a, a pretty solid living flying toys on the coolest things. And, you know, when you do it well, you're like the rock star on set. You know, like you yep. said, that director and DP, it's like people are really praising me and paying me to do this because this is fun anyway. So, yeah, it's yeah. it's pretty cool. That's awesome. Well, Trent, thank you so much for coming out on this podcast um it's an honor to have you on here yeah i um, liked being here it was fun yeah so really quick what are the best ways for people to get uh, to a hold of you to hire you to check you out on facebook instagram give me all that all those deeds google copter kids it's the easiest thing okay <laughs> our website's copterkidsllc.com or copter kids on facebook copter kids on instagram i don't keep up with any of the youtube st- stuff through copter kids um, i should i just i don't know it's been the 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 personal in the youtube account that's been taking my time but cool. yeah find us on any of those other platforms uh, and yeah all right thanks again trent yeah no and, problem uh, thanks for having me yeah we'll see you later sounds good thank you so much for listening to the drone pro podcast if you enjoyed this i highly recommend going to droneproacademy.com You can check out my Cinematic Drone Secrets course where you can learn everything about getting amazing cinematic drone shots no matter what drone you own. Also, if you want to make money with your drone, check out my Part 107 Bootcamp. Both courses are heavily discounted right now, so go check them out. Also, if you like this podcast, please subscribe. And if you have any recommendations of who I can interview in the drone world, please just shoot me an email at chris at droneproacademy.com. 